This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice, a conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Once again, I welcome you to our Hurt with Fetters podcast. I am Pastor Greg Smith and your host, and I'm here with our author of the book, Hurt with Fetters, Jason Karch. Thank you for joining us today. Jason, welcome. Again, it's good to be here, Pastor. We are recording this from uh, inside a prison unit, and there are other things going on here. We were not able to do it at a time when some other things weren't going on, so we just we just ask you to, to bear with us and uh, because it is just the nature of the beast. All right, today we're, we're going to take a reflection on punishment itself. We've been talking about the theological understanding of who God is and how that relates to and, and things like love and wrath and justice and law and how the, all those things relate to a Christian view of the criminal justice system or how it should relate to a Christian view of the criminal justice system. And today the issue is punishment. And you begin this chapter, Jason, with a couple of accounts of some pretty notorious criminals and the punishment that they faced. Would you uh, just kind of walk us through that real quick? Well, the two examples I use are punishment of Sammy the Bull or Sammy Gravano, which was John Gotti's, basically his enforcer or his assassin, and the guy Frank Lucas who uh, the movie American Gangster depicts his story. Of course, Frank Lucas is played by Denzel Washington in the movie. And I use these guys of, uh, as an examples because Gravano, uh, Sammy the Bull, was responsible for multiple uh, gang-related, mob-style gang-related murders uh, and confessed those murders to the FBI. But in exchange for his testimony against Gotti, he received a five-year sentence uh, in which he only served roughly a year of that sentence and then entered into you know, federal protection through the witness protection program. And, and then, of course, Frank Lucas, who was possibly the most prolific heroin dealer you know, on the East Coast anyway, probably in the entire United States in his day, importing heroin from Vietnam, I believe it was, using United States military air transports to get the heroin into the country and again, cut a deal with authorities uh, in exchange for his testimony against corrupt police officials that was involved in you know, his heroin trade. But these guys, given the level of their criminality and the punishments they received, and you contrast that with somebody who gets busted with a gram of methamphetamines and is sentenced to 35 years in prison, which they served 12, 15 years of that sentence uh, to be released on parole. You know, you have these, this disparity between criminals and punishments that help us to see that punishment of crime in America has little to do with justice. Justice has become somewhat of a, of a byword that attempts to validate a practice that is relative or even arbitrary. So, just to clarify, and and I, w- I want us to think and maybe get a little more personal on this. But first of all, 
Sammy the Bull Gravano, he confessed to 19 organized crime murders. And this was back in the 70s and 80s he committed these murders, correct? Yes. And uh, the, the FBI, I think, believe that probably he's responsible for at least 28 homicides. And he ends up receiving a five-year prison sentence for that. And he ends up, of that five years, he had already been in for a couple of years anyway when he was sentenced because they were keeping him in custody. And then, so he ends up serving a year of that and then he goes into protective custody. Yes. So 28 fairly certain murders, basically five-year sentence. Frank Lucas, heroin dealer, responsible. In fact, he was once deemed the most dangerous man in New York. Bribery, conspiracy, extortion, racketeering, murder among the charges brought against him. Sentenced to 15 years. His, he was actually originally received a 70-year sentence. They reduced it to 15. In exchange, for in exchange for his testimony against these law enforcement officers. So just to clarify, at some point, the prosecuting attorney who's asking for the sentence, or the government, or however you think about how this worked out, decided that these guys were, that, that they should be lenient on these guys in order to get bigger fish, or worse fish, or, and, and, or worse criminals, I guess, right? I mean, exactly how, how do you think about that? How does that work? Well, in Gravano's case, that was certainly the deal because they were after the boss, you know, the mob boss, John Gotti. And through the testimony of Sammy the Bull, they were able to convict Gotti, sentence him to life in federal prison. He ultimately, you know, died in federal prison. But I guess in a prosecutor's mind that we're going to overlook the potential of 28, 29 mob-style gang-related murders so that we can get the guy that we feel like is at the top of the food chain. So... How is that justice? Okay, but, yeah. but, but really I think to understand that, because I, I think you, know, you could ask the question, so what is, the issue is fair. What is or isn't fair, or what does 28 murders, what would be just in terms of a sentence? Or as a heroin dealer, uh, you know, messing up you know, lives, violating the law in that way, and maybe bribing and all this other stuff, what is a fair punishment for that? Is a year in prison? life in prison, death row, whatever. But I think from just that standpoint, it's kind of hard to even, you know, make for us to make that judgment. So, so you have to, to look at it in light of something else. And just to make this personal, so you were convicted, and I know we've mentioned this in a previous episode, you were convicted of what crime? An aggravated robbery. Okay, so aggravated robbery, which means you had a weapon when you committed this robbery? Yes. Was anyone was anyone killed in this robbery? No. Did you shoot anybody in this robbery? No. The gun was discharged though, yes. into the ceiling or yes. something like that. So you were caught, you were convicted of of uh, aggravated robbery and you were sentenced to life in prison. So a guy commits 28 at least that they feel like they could probably hang on or prove. He has 5 years. Another guy deals heroin, everything else. He's sentenced ultimately to 15 years. You uh, commit a robbery and you're sentenced to life in prison. 
I think when you look at it in those terms, it's real easy to see that there's something wrong here. Right? I mean, if the question is what is fair and what is not fair, I might not be able to say I know what is or isn't a fair sentence for a crime, but I know that's not it. When I look at that, something's wrong. What exactly is wrong? Well, I think what becomes wrong is we have lost, first and foremost, a this ontological grounding for who and what we are as human beings, uh, number one. And number two, when we lose that, we lose a real ground for justice. We've fleshed those things out, you know, in our previous episodes. But when we lose who we are as human beings, then we have lost, you know, the value that we carry, the worth that we carry, the equality that we carry. We've lost all of that. We've lost a real sense of justice. And so now, the law has a value in and of itself and so violations of the law demand certain punishments and punishments for those violations of the law are not rooted in justice they're not rooted in the equality of who we are as human beings and it becomes altogether arbitrary it becomes relative so that we get instances like the situation with Sammy the Bull or even Frank Lucas. Well, would someone be able to argue but the greater good was served there? So justice was served even though he, he killed 28 people and he sentenced to five years. Justice was served or the greater good or society was served because we got the bigger guy, the one who was actually pulling the strings or giving the orders or something. Is it, would, could somebody argue that, that, that that is justice actually because the end served the means. It justified, the end justified took place in that justice. Now if, if we construe justice as an, the pursuit of the greater good, then yeah, maybe you can make that case, but I don't think that's what justice is. The greater good in whose eyes? I mean, do the families of the people that were, who lost their lives because of the trigger finger of Sammy the Bull, do they feel as if justice was served? Or in, in their minds was the greater good served? And, you know, somebody like in Frank Lucas's case, somebody that lost a child who overdosed on Frank Lucas's heroin, did they feel as if the greater good was served because some corrupt officials were rounded up because of Lucas's testimony? I don't know if that's the case. So I don't think it's a question of justice at all. Okay, so we've already gone through, you know, we, we've done a reflection on justice. We've talked about, we've talked about that, but it, but it keeps coming back up, you know, how, how this thing works. So the issue here becomes justice, and we've already had a discussion on justice. But, you know, one of the things that you've argued is that the way crime is punished, or what we would call justice in, in this country, is a reflection of the narrative that's being told, or the story that's being told, the good people and the bad people. But I don't think anybody would say that these guys were good people, right? They're bad people. Sammy the Bull is a bad person. You know, this other dude, bad person, the heroin drugger, he's a bad person. But they end up being treated with leniency for expediency, for the greater good, for whatever. I mean, however they thought about it. So I think the question comes in, how do we, how do we justify 
any punishment of any crime. I mean, what should it look like or what must it look like? You argue of the difference between systemic validity and moral validity. How should I approach the punishment of crime in my thinking? First, I think that using Gravano and Lucas as examples given the way we've articulated the current narrative of criminal justice where you have this distinction between good people and bad people I think these are examples of somewhat of the the capitulation or the collapse of the narrative because I guarantee you that the prosecutors who ended up cutting these deals the judges who signed off on those deals they didn't do that with a sense of victory or joy in their hearts and minds. They probably left a sour taste in their mouth that, well, I, I couldn't get this bad guy to the fullest extent that I wanted to get him. I had to compromise a portion of the narrative so that I could get the worst guy of these bad guys. So I don't think that they did that with a sense of joy. I think that that is actually examples of a a collapse of the narrative where there has to be compromises within the narrative and it shows its weakness, number one. And number two, I believe that there is a necessity for the punishment of crime, but the question we should be asking is, it never construed in, a, in punitive terms, like what is an adequate sentence for 28 murders or what is an adequate sentence for an aggravated robbery or for a possession of a gram of methamphetamines, we should never ask those questions in punitive terms, but we should ask those questions in restorative terms. There needs to be punishment for crime, but punishment is not an end in itself, but it has a goal toward restoring this person, offering this person an opportunity for redemption and being able to be reconciled back to the society that he's offended or that he's violated in some way. You mentioned that, that punishment is not an easy task, and which kind of begs the question, how, how do we determine punishment? There is a societal aspect to that. How is the punishment of crime determined in this country? Well, by and large, punishment of crime is determined by the weight of the current narrative of criminal justice. This story that's being told to society, to the American public, that legitimizes a punishment of crime for the sake of punishment itself. And so I think that is what goes leaps and bounds to legitimize and even define how crime is punished in this country today. So is it a societal construct? I mean, is it the, does the punishment of crime reflect what we as a society deem important, legitimate, what we consider to be bad, good, whatever? Is, is, that, uh, is that the way that punishment is determined? Well, I think it was, who was it? Dostoevsky that said, if you want to gauge like, the, the moral component of a, of a nation, look at how it punishes its criminals. Of course, Dostoevsky was converted to Christianity on his way to the Gulag, yeah, to a, a prison in Siberia. Once his death sentence was commuted, right before you know, the rifles were fired, the hood on and everything, you know, thinking that 
this is it. So if the punishment of crime is determined by what society deems to be appropriate, ultimately, because I think that both in its harshness or in its, uh, what would be the other side of that, you know, the, the soft on crime, and what I kind of see going on in, in, our, in our culture is it kind of goes back and forth, you know. And uh, some of it is based upon maybe if, if someone commits a crime and they're not severely punished for it or they don't spend a lot of time in prison and they get out and they, and they commit another crime against somebody else and the cries go up, you know, these people are soft on crime. We don't necessarily consider when someone is thrown in prison and the key is thrown away that we're hard on crime. We don't necessarily think about it in those terms. We don't see that. But punishment basically then, if you look at punishment in this way, the, the focus is on the criminal himself or the, or the one who perpetrated the crime. The, the victim is given no consideration, right? Well, I don't even think it's on the, the perpetrator of the crime. I think it's on the criminal act, on the act itself. And it takes no account for either the victim or the offender. I think it's on the act itself. And the offender, the one that committed the act, becomes the corpus by which the punishment is carried out, the body that the punishment is carried out on. Because no emphasis is on the humanity of either the, you know, the perpetrator of the crime or the victim of the crime. This is something altogether different. And so we see the responsibility or, or the, the, the culture almost becomes We've got to punish this crime, and the, the, the individual just kind of becomes the means or the, I don't know, surrogate almost becomes the word of the punishment of the crime itself without any thought or concern at all about its humanity or what it could or couldn't be. So in order for, for crime to be punished in a just way, there has to be some benefit. Would that, would you agree with that? Would you, would you say that that's right? There has to be some benefit either to society, to the, the one who perpetrated the crime, to the victim. There has to be a benefit. I think, I think it's a collection of those three. It has to be beneficial, meaningful, purposeful for society, for the victim, and for the perpetrator of the crime. Well, you, you know, myself as an example again, I think maybe some element of society benefited from me being sentenced to life in prison. The victims may perceive that as a benefit, me being sentenced to life in prison. Uh, did I benefit uh, from coming to prison? I think so. But do I benefit from a life sentence? I don't know if I benefit from a life sentence because in my own estimation, this serves no purpose anymore in terms of the punishment of crime. You benefit by within 18 months after coming to prison, you profess faith in Christ and now- My life is radically different. Your life is radically changed. Although the prosecutor, I don't think, or the judge or the jury or anybody else thought we're gonna send this guy to prison so that he can get saved, right? It happened by God's grace, God's the one did it. That wasn't necessarily part of the system. Victims, no benefit. 
or other than maybe they feel good about the fact that this guy who robbed us is in prison for life. So how might that look different? What was the goal of that punishment? The goal of that punishment was twofold. One, it was to ensure that I never robbed anybody else. And number, so is that deterrence? Well, and number two, and, and the prosecutor said this, to send a message to other would-be criminals that they don't tolerate that in their community. So yeah, it was twofold in their minds. The goal of this punishment was to ensure that this that I never perpetrated this type of thing on the outside again. And number two, to send a very clear message to other people who might be thinking about doing the same thing, that they don't tolerate that in, in their community. So would that be fair? I mean, to punish somebody so that somebody else might not do the crime? Is that a legitimate? Well, I think it could be a legitimate result of the punishment of crime, but never, ever, ever it's a goal. Never it's goal. That's not fair. I mean, so why not? I well, I, I just don't think it's right. Whether it's fair or not, I don't think it's right. I footnote Donald McLeod, you know, he makes the assertion that no authority has the right to use a human being as an instrument of social policy. Such a policy smacks of the worst atrocities of Nazism. So deterrence might very well be an outcome or a legitimate result, but that's not why we send somebody to prison. That's not why we send somebody to prison. So what we're dealing here with a theory of crime and punishment or the judicial system that is founded upon uh, something that you call legal positivism, that it shapes our understanding, that that theory shapes our understanding of law, crime, punishment. Go back to that and remind us exactly what is that? What are you talking about there? So again, legal positivism uh, is born out of logical positivism to where you know there has to be a, you know it has a verification principle so something has to be for it to be valid it has to be empirically verifiable and then as a philosophical system legal positivism couldn't even measure up to its own standards so it was discarded but born out of logical positivism was what we call the soft science of sociology and branches of sociology or criminology criminal justice, penology, these things, and they still play a very distinct role in how crime is understood, how the punishment of crime is understood, articulated, and carried out, and however influential positivistic articulations of punishment of crime may be, I think that we as Christians always have to get back to the fact that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And we have inherent dignity and value and worth related to that. So any punishment of crime has to stem from that fundamental understanding of who we are as human beings. But, but, but some theologians would say that institutional justice, which is what we're talking about here, and you actually quote Calvin, I think, is blind to God's image in man and, and basically devolves into institutions of idolatrous and tyrannous bondage or irrationality and injustice that denies human dignity. So basically all that is set aside, ultimately. If you take this approach, if, if you take a, I guess I say godless approach, or if you set God aside or you say, I'm not going to be impacted or influenced or I'm not going to think of these things from a God perspective, basically you devolve into a animalistic, basically. And so what does that 
do. You use the word harsh punishment, which what I hear you saying is, is that's where we come to. So when we punish crime, we don't do so from this aspect of what is the end goal because you are based or you are a, a human being created in the image of God and God is the ultimate uh, arbiter of justice. We don't come at it, that, you know, the system doesn't come at it from that way, so it punishes crime harshly. What do you mean by that? When we think about harsh punishments of crime, I'm thinking about the punishment of crime strictly in punitive or retributive term, where punishment becomes an end in and of itself. That's the harsh punishment of crime because, I mean, obviously, we've argued in the past and, you know, I even reaffirm that here. I do think that because of how entrenched uh, the institution of prisons is in the United States, uh, in the, the American economy, to argue for the abolition of, of prisons is not uh, something that is doable. You know, so I think that there is a sense in which the punishment of crime in reference to prison sentences is valid. I don't mean that is a harsh punishment of crime, but if that becomes an end in and of itself, that's harsh. That's harsh because it does not speak to our humanity. The punishment does not speak to our humanity, our dignity as human beings. It does not afford us an opportunity for redemption, for being restored adequately back to society to be reconciled back to society. And I think to remove the sense of harshness, there has to be some element of restoration, reconciliation, and redemption woven into our concepts of punishment. Okay, there's a couple of biblical passages that come to bear at this point, Romans chapter 13 and then 1 Peter 2. So you have Paul and Peter discussing the role or the responsibility that legitimate government has as an institution or as a divine institution basically in the administration of justice or the punishment of crime. But where does that where does that stop or how, or how does that that work? It, it almost sounds like anything that a government does in saying that this is we're we're punishing crime, then that's legitimate from God's perspective. Yeah, there's a legitimacy there, but they it's not a license. Just because it's legitimate, there's not a license there for governments, even though the Bible claims that they are institutions of God. That's not a license for them to do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, to punish crime however they see fit. Again, it goes back to, you know, what is the place in which we stand? If governments want to derive their authority uh, is ultimately coming from God, we get that from the scriptures. So they have to be able to validate or affirm their institutional practices of the punishment of crime from the scriptures as well. And so I think that even though there's a validity to the existence of government and how it is that they have the authority to punish crime, they're not able to just do that however they want. But even if they were to punish crime, if they were to say, for example, that you are never going to change and we're going to separate you from society, but we're not going to put you in a, a building that for the most part doesn't have air conditioning in the summer or heating in the winter, 
And so, you know, whatever the food is like or anything else like that, and I can bear witness to the testimony because there are people out there that think, you know, that everybody who's in prison is kind of like living in a country club. It's certainly not the case here in this particular institution that we're in today. But even if they did put you in a country club, but they gave you no opportunity for reconciliation or redemption or restoration, that would be harsh punishment. I believe so. Even if I had all of the creature conference in the world, but still there's a relational aspect to our beings as humans. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard that said the worst form of punishment ever devised by man is to take him and isolate him. And so we have a communal nature, a relational nature, and you can give somebody all the creature conference in the world, but if, if it's communicated to them that you're being separated from society because of a violation of the law, because of a crime you committed, because you've done something wrong, and this is your punishment, even though they have all these creature comforts, just because they are unable to be redeemed, reconciled, restored, yeah, I think that's harsh. So in order to be unharsh or valid punishment, the opportunity has to be offered for reconciliation, restoration, restitution, perhaps, however that works, right? I mean, that would be that's your basic argument here, right? Yes. Okay. What if someone such as yourself decides, I'm not interested in reconciliation, restitution. I'm not going to make restitution. If you let me out, I'll go back and do the exact same thing I was doing. I'm not going to be reconciled to God or anybody else. What if you reject that possibility or that opportunity? How do you punish that crime? Is that without being harsh? You still offer the opportunity, but it's rejected. The punishment persists. The punishment is there, but if somebody does not want the opportunities afforded to them for redemption, restoration, reconciliation, if they don't want that, then the punishment is still there and it, it can still persist. For instance, if somebody is sentenced to 10 years in prison, different states have different laws that govern how much time has to be served on a prison sentence. So here in Texas, a 10-year aggravated sentence, you have to serve 50% before you're eligible for parole. Well, you do five years to be eligible for parole on the 10-year sentence. And at your parole hearing, if you have taken advantage of all the opportunities afforded to you for redemption, restoration, reconciliation, then you meet the criteria to be restored back to society under supervision out there. But, you know, even here in Texas, one of the reasons parole is denied is based on the nature of the offense. Well, there's nothing you can ever do to change the nature of the offense. I can serve 30 calendar years, be eligible for parole, and be denied parole for the nature of the offense. For 30 calendar years, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can ever do to change the nature of the offense. I can live out the rest of my natural life in prison and never be able to change the nature of the offense. Now, so for somebody who doesn't want the redemption, doesn't want the reconciliation, well, the punishment is there. It can persist. It can continue. You can deny them parole because you know, they don't want to change. But doesn't in some way uh, the system take those things to, to account? Okay, so the nature of the offense, understand that. I don't know exactly how that works. but. 
you know, I'm familiar with other guys who are coming up for parole, and they've been doing everything they can to show the parole board, hey, I'm a different person, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to demonstrate or to show to the parole board that I am rehabilitated, I suppose. You know, to give you an example, a guy does all of that, and then he's given a three-year set-off. So, so he goes to he goes before the parole board, and they say, "No, you got to serve at least three more years." Three, three more years, years before, and then we'll talk to you again. Yeah, then we'll review you again. Okay, a three-year so set-off. He continues to do even more stuff. You know, he doesn't he doesn't regress. He continues to progress. Still, complete more programs, complete more classes. These these things does the three years, which is reviewed again, and then he's given another three years set off. The only reason for the set off is for the nature of the offense. And so you got another guy who has done none of those things, has met no criteria, and is granted his first parole. So there are criteria that they use, your age, the type of crime, how much time you, there, there are criteria that the parole board uses in which to vet your, I guess, your qualifications for parole or those, those things. However, they're not based in your ability to seek redemption, your ability to desire uh, reconciliation and restoration. They're not built in any of that. Going back to the biblical text, then, does Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter 2, where he speaks of the responsibility of government and of God's people to support the government or to obey the government because they are instruments uh, of God. God is the one that puts people in authority. So do they allow, though, for punitive justice? Or what does justice look like, I guess, from a biblical perspective from that sense where the government is given the responsibility by God to to do good for society. Yeah, well I think from a biblical perspective, punishment has to have a relational value. And if that's the case, then the goal of punishment is to restore a ruptured relationship. And again, it goes back to our understanding of justice being a relational thing. And so I think given the presupposition of a a biblical understanding of justice in the mind of Peter and Paul. They don't see retributive punishment as a legitimate function of the government. There has to be a, a restorative aspect built in this idea of a relational value in the context of punishment. It's not about punitive or retributive exercises of punishment. It's about restoration. So the issue ultimately becomes when we're, when we're speaking about the punishment of crime and humane versus inhumane. And you just think of that word, humane, humanity. And God is a, he's a relational being. And we were created for relationship with God and for one another. So for the punishment of crime to be humane, it must somehow come back to that. It must somehow work to restore the relationship that was that has been ruptured. And we're speaking it from a Christian perspective. And and this is going to be very difficult, I think, from a secular perspective or the institutional perspective where you have the one, well, you know, we just lock them up and throw what do we care because 
we're separating them, we're doing our job or whatnot. But from a Christian perspective, we've got to look at these issues from a the relational aspect of God. So you begin to talk about what you term reprobative punishment. Unpack that for me just a little bit. Well, reprobative punishment uh, is derived from uh, Nicholas Walter's story. And he defines it as an intrinsic good in the life of the punisher and the wrongdoer and an important instructional good for society in general. And I think that while it may retain some elements of what we deem as harsh treatment, for instance, sending somebody to prison in somebody's mind, that might be harsh. Or locking him away in isolation or something. Yeah, you know, in some people's mind that might be harsh, but as we've argued, you know, there may be necessary elements uh, for the use of prisons for the punishment of crime, so they may retain elements of that. But it also provides an opportunity for whoever committed the crime to work toward reconciliation both with and the restoration of the relationship that was fractured by the commission of the crime. It gives punishment a purpose. So if you were given the task to design a system of punishment that is reprobative, how's that going to work or what, the, what is that going to look like? We wouldn't even have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, there's models in other European countries that do that exact thing. In other countries, there's continual steps that you, where you basically work your way out of the punishment. Uh, does our system incorporate that in some ways? I know there's, uh, there's different classifications of the time you serve, right? So uh, there's flat time, which would be day for day. If you're sentenced to 10 years, you serve 10 years, 10 years counts for 10 years. But there's also good time, right? So if you stay out of trouble or something like that, you get extra credit. So 10 years might be seven years or five years, unless you have an aggravated sentence like yourself. I understand it doesn't count there. But for those who don't, is that is that kind of comparable or? No, no, because even though, you know, nowadays, even for someone with a non-aggravated sentence, good time and work time, so you have flat time, good time, and work time that equal a number of years that reflects on paper, but in reality, it mean, the only thing that means anything is the flat time. Now, for somebody serving a non-aggravated sentence, once they reach 100% of their sentence by their good time, flat time, and work time, once that reach was 100%, they're, they're eligible for what they call a mandatory supervision review. Now, in the English language, mandatory means mandatory. And used to, once your time reached 100%, it was mandatory that you be released on supervision, parole supervision. But now mandatory means discretionary somehow. So the mayor may not release you, depending, even though you have reach the requirements for mandatory supervision. So you could be denied parole. Yes. For somebody like me, though, you know, with an aggravated sentence, then, you know, the good time and work time is absolutely meaningless. You're going to serve at least 30 years until, before you're eligible for parole, and then you may or may not get it in, until the end of your natural life because this is a life sentence. Yes. Uh, after we had been working here in this unit for a while. 
and we had really seen the benefit that you guys who are field ministers in this particular institution had brought and, and the changes that, that just your presence here had brought and in terms of you know what the gospel was doing. I asked the guy who had told me that he wanted these offenders to come back as his job security. I asked him what difference had the field ministers made here with bringing the gospel in and making it primary. And his one word answer was peace. Another thing I'll never forget, he said peace. That before before you guys came, there was a sense of hopelessness. There would be riots, stabbings, fights, those type of things. And you guys come and begin to and begin to share the gospel and, and, and you guys are, you know, long term uh, you know, you have long term sentences. But you bring the gospel in and you begin to share the gospel and and there's there's, there's peace that sends on this. And that was really his response, his honest response, peace. You guys brought peace, which is what the gospel can do. But still, from a institutional setting or perspective, it, one in which the gospel has ultimately no meaning. I mean, the gospel is personal for you and me, certainly, but or any other institution that the gospel really makes a difference. And it might be that institutionally, if the institution itself could come to that place where they recognize that life change is really what we ought to be about. In fact, if we look at the, the, the stated goals or values of the criminal justice system, it is to, it doesn't have anything to do with, with punitive justice or punitive a punishment has everything to do with restoration and reconciliation and re redemption. That's the stated, but it's certainly not the way it works out in reality. And as God's people, what we're talking about is we need to change that. Yes. Yeah. And I believe that if it has that goal towards the future, then it becomes pregnant with hope. And as that hope is pursued, it's done so with a sense of peace because people know that there's something beyond this. At the very end of this chapter, you quote James Prothro, and I'd, I'd like to just close with this. Listen to what he said. Would you read it? The Christian call to be faithful in doing right by all people, born and unborn, rightly and wrongly poor, rightly and wrongly rich, immigrants, foreigner, enemy, and prisoner cannot be muffled by any law. Against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, against which there is no law. Against which. Where we've come back to the place of what God has done and what He does in the heart and the life of an individual. And may He be glorified and praised. Jason, God bless you today. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us again. We pray the richest blessings upon you. We invite you to join us for our next episode, which will be a reflection on dehumanization. Mm. God bless. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Feathers, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice.
The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.